Let's get going. I've got a lot that we're going to go through today. Today's kind of an exciting day. It's a bit of something that in America we celebrate. In fact, parts of the world celebrate today. And I know you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door, right? I know that's what you all were thinking, right? And in those 95 Theses, he was bringing correction, correcting some errors. Now, you know if it would have been me, it would have been 95 Reeses punch up there, right? But that's besides the point. I know, bad joke, sorry. I'll be here all week. Be sure to tip your waitress, all right? But here's the thing, is that today is interesting that we're there because today as I get into what I'm teaching, it's a little ironic how we've gotten to this point. Because what was the purpose of the 95 Theses of what Martin Luther was going to do? Has anybody actually sat down and read all 95 of them? Show of hands, how many have? That's what I figured. Most of us have. And we know what they are, but we don't know what they say. Did you know that there are some things in there that we would disagree with? Of course, right? You're going to write 95 sentences. You'll find one that you don't like. You know, it's like somebody, depending on what state they come from, will sneak a boomer sooner in there or something like that. It'll just make your skin crawl. We don't need any of that kind of noise in here. But, but the thing is, is that what was he doing? Bringing correction to error. Now, you don't know what that cost him because we often don't think about that. But he was a part of the Roman Catholic Church. He was part of that society. And by doing this, what was he doing? He was cutting off the head, essentially, because there was no more support there. And some of it had to do with indulgences. Some of it had to do with purgatory. Some of it had to do with the fact that the Pope was a very wealthy man, and yet they were taking money from poor people trying to build these great big buildings and stuff that they were trying to do. He kind of had a problem with that. Some of it had to do with the doctrine of, of scriptural inerrancy and the papacy and the, and, and the uh, authority of the Pope and all this other stuff. Some of it, guys, that we would disagree with because it's unbiblical, but here's the bottom line. He was bringing correction to error. But how do we end up in error is what we come down to. How do they end up there? Because remember, if you read ancient first century, second century writings, it'll say Catholic Church by a lot of what we call the church fathers, but the term Catholic and the term Roman Catholic are not the same thing. Because Catholic just meant universal. It was the church. But that name got hijacked by Rome and went in a whole nother direction. So, let's get into this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We know this. We've read it. If you're in Christ, you are not what you were, but you are something new. You are now created into the image of God. We often think about that as our flesh, but really that's not what it's talking about. We're now created in the image and likeness of Christ. Thus we represent him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Carnally minded, spiritually minded. What do we think of? Oftentimes, moral issues. Carnal mind thinks of all the naughty stuff. Spiritual mind thinks of all the good stuff. And that is true. It's only part of the truth. Because the carnal mind reacts in a carnal way. And the spiritual mind reacts in a spiritual way. When things come against you, how you react will tell you where you are. I've talked about it before. You know, how you react when a person is punched in the mouth will tell you a lot about how you are trained. You know? And so when we look at this, it's like, well, what is carnal? Well, what happens when sickness comes on you? What happens when there's a financial meltdown? What happens when the things around you just kind of fall apart? Are you going to respond in a carnal way, or are you going to respond in a spiritual way, trusting and putting your faith, hope, in God? How do you respond? See, that is carnal and spiritual. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg that you, when I am present with you, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. How do we war? Not in carnal ways. We war in spiritual ways. And we begin to break this down. And I mean, you heard Laura talk about a little bit this this morning. As she, was, no, she called me on her way down here, and she's like, man, I've just been praying. I've got this burden. I said, Laura, I know you've been in children's church, you know, getting ready for this thing, but literally been talking about this for several weeks now. Where you been? Like, it's sad when people fall asleep and they miss the whole thing, you know? So then they don't know. It's okay. I get it. But we spent several weeks digging into this idea because the thing is, we're in a spiritual battle, but we don't know it. We don't recognize. In fact, we're kind of numb to it. There are things that are happening around us, and unless it's a big, big thing that draws all of our focus, we miss the little nuances. So, let's, let's go back. We've answered four fundamental questions that every believer must ask and be able to answer, not from an opinion base but from a biblical basis. Number one is who is God. Number two is who am I in relationship with God. Number three is how do I worship God. And number four is who is my enemy. And we've gone through each week and breaking these down. We took a couple weeks on some, but we're breaking this down. Do you realize that we did not exhaustively cover every detail that we could cover because we would never talk about anything else? Do you realize that you have a responsibility to take what I teach on Sunday mornings and then to do what Acts 17, 11 says, is to go home and see if those things which you said are true and then dig in deeper than that? You have that responsibility. And I know you all do it every week. I bet you go home, you sit around the table. Let's go find all the things he said was wrong, right? I get that. But who is God? Number one, a lot of opinions are based in facts. And if we know who the creator God is, well, who am I in relationship to him? Because that matters. You had a deistic belief of which God was up here and we were down here. And yeah, God started it all, but kind of lays off. He doesn't interfere with us. And if you believe that, how will you respond? Differently than if you believe that you have this personal relationship with this creator God, who is there with you every day, said, I'll never leave or forsake you. He's a part of your life. He's a part of your decision making. And what you say and do will grieve him. Or please him that matters and then the third part is how I worship this God because do I get to worship him in any way that I want or has he laid out parameters and things like no this is how you worship me we have to know that but the last part that we've been talking about and we're going to be talking about is who is my enemy and I put this image up here because this is often what we think of when we think of spiritual warfare We've got this white European Jesus and this red-horned devil, and they're in some way or another arm-wrestling, thumb-wrestling. Maybe they got weapons. I don't know. But they're going at it. And this is what we think, but that's not reality. Because we've talked about, number one, that Jesus probably didn't look like that because he was a Jew. All right? His last name was not Christ. It was a title. We know that the enemy doesn't look like this because he was what? He was an anointed cherub. So he likely looked like a cherub, and if you saw the pictures last week, that's freaky, weird-looking things. And we also talked about what his name is, because while we say Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whatever, those are more titles than they are proper names, and yet we've accepted that it's proper names, but it's like it matters who we're talking about. 
But now we start getting into the deeper parts of this. Because here's the thing. If you're going to battle with someone or something, it helps if you know who that someone is and maybe even what they look like and how they respond. It would be like if you're going on a blind date. Anybody ever been on a blind date before? Yeah, all right. You don't know what they look like. Facebook helps with that because we can stalk people now. But you don't know what to expect. And so you're sitting there and your anticipation is like, please don't let her be ugly. I mean, not that I'm a catch, but please don't, you know. Please don't let her look like me, (laughs) you know. I mean, you don't know. And you think about this, when they go to war, what do they do? They do reconnaissance, trying to figure out, okay, what are they doing? How are they acting? How do we know who is for us and who is against us? All of this kind of stuff. You see, the spiritual battle stuff, and the, the language that Paul uses in many of the verses that we've read, and we'll read again, is very much a wartime linguistic use, I guess is how I'll put this. Is we have just kind of taken these as metaphors. They're not metaphors. Because it's very clear that there is a battle that is going on. There is a battle ultimately for your soul. But once that's lost, what happens? Now he enters in and tries to make you unfruitful. That's why we talked about Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8 with the four soils. Because at one point you're not saved. And it says that the devil comes to steal the seed that was planted in your heart unless you believe and become saved. But once you get past that part, then you've got three other levels, two of which are unfruitful, one of which is fruitful. Where does he want you to be? Not fruitful. He wants you unfruitful. So knowing what he looks like and knowing what his name is, so to speak, is more about being uh, uh, understanding what Scripture actually says versus what society says because he doesn't have horns and a pointy tail and a pitchfork or any of that. He's not the king of hell like many would believe. Those come from books and movies. No more than angels are fat little babies with wings and halos and all of that. None of that is accurate, but it's cute and it sells cards and children's books. Because nobody's painting on their nursery wall a cherubim or a seraphim with four heads, a bunch of eyeballs and wings and terrifying things. Nobody's doing that. So here we have to begin to look and say, all right, who is he? So what does he look like? What is his name? Those matter. How does he move? See, that's the next phase is how does he attack? And the 95 Theses has a part to play in all of this. So it's ironic that it lands today. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is something that you guys are are very well familiar with. It says, finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now let's pause for a moment. Leave this up here if you would. The first question we've got to begin to ask is why did Paul write this? He says to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Where does our strength come from? Where is the might that we lean on? It's much like this when we're talking about we do this in remembrance of him. Remembrance of what? It was his blood that was shed. It was his body that was broken. What did you do? You received it. So the battle is going on and the war is being waged and whose strength are we relying in? And whose might do we rest in? It's not yours. It's God's. That's first and foremost. But then he says, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. 
That implies something. Do you know what the implication of that is? You weren't born with it on you. That means it is your responsibility to put it on and leave it on because you could take it off. You see, we have to begin to address those things. So let me show you this. I've got a picture here of the armor of God. I don't have my pointer in here today. I have taught through this in depth. I'm not going to do that again today. You've got the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, uh, the go- uh, your feet are protected with the gospel of peace, all of that kind of stuff. There's one thing missing. Does anybody know what's missing off of this list? It's the spear. It's the lance, the prayer. There's multiple lances they don't have in here. It's implied by Paul. Now, many believe that Paul was looking at a Roman soldier as he began to write this. He was in prison, but he began to write this, and he was writing this down. But here's the thing. He says, put on the whole armor of God, not pick your favorite piece, right? You see, while they were individual pieces, they all locked into one another. The belt of truth was the central piece, the central thing to it. If that wasn't there, everything else fell apart because the breastplate and all the other parts locked into it, including the sword, including the shield, it all locked into there. It was one unit working together. Bunch of individual pieces, but one unit come together. And if you take one of those away, what are you now? You are exposed. And so that is why truth is so essential, because you can believe a lie very easily. Whether it be half-truths, whether it be whole lies, it doesn't matter. And what do we call that? You are deceived. 95 Theses was to bring correction to the deception that had crept in to, at that time, what was known as the church. Why is that? It matters. We'll come back. So we're going to focus on the helmet. The helmet matters. I've got a couple of pictures here. They didn't exactly look like this, but if you go and Google image, this is the kind of stuff that pulls up. The plume had one purpose, and that was to be seen. Some Roman soldiers had it, some didn't, but the biggest thing is, is that would lock into the back of the breastplate. So while they turned, they turned like this. The idea of keeping your head on a swivel wasn't very easy to do. Don't think back to the Ten Commandments that you watched when you guys were kids and stuff like that. It wasn't exactly like that. They didn't just walk around in sandals and skirts, okay? Those shoes had spikes on the bottom of them. But that was basically to be seen. It was very ornate. It was very, very beautiful, very expensive. And the thing about that armor, and this is what we got to understand, is it wasn't mass-produced. They didn't have a factory there. They're spitting it out because one size fits all. Because I promise you that if Ethan said, hey, Chris, you want to borrow my armor? We'd have a problem, Right? We're going to test those welds to see how well they hold, right? You're like a hot dog in the microwave just getting ready. It's like a can of biscuits when it pops open. I mean, I don't know. I could come up with all sorts of analogies. It's not going to go well. And on the flip side, if I said, Ethan, hey, you want to borrow my armor? He says, sure, I'm going to play basketball in this stuff. I got room to move. It's cozy. 1,200 square foot apartment. It's awesome. Well, mini fridge, whatever. You see, the, every part was individually crafted to fit that person had to be because not one size fits all individually they would put these on they would wear these helmets and the helmet really served one purpose you want to guess just take a stab in the dark what the purpose of that helmet was to protect your head i know big stretch they had these things they were called battle axes and they would go around and they'd swing them babies you know what they were trying to do Cut off your head. 
Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but this is a little fun fact, a little side piece. I'm not going to charge you extra for this, but do you know why they call Marines leathernecks? Because when they uh, were at war many, many years ago, when the Marines were uh, in the infancy, or infantry, what am I trying to say? Yeah, infancy, the young part. They would wear these leather straps around their neck because they were fighting Muslim nations, and they were always trying to behead them. That's why they got known as the Leathernecks. Did you know that? Final Jeopardy question. Now, you, you ever go to a trivia night, you win, I get 20%, okay? So there you go. But this thing was crucial. And it, 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 all of it mattered, but this part mattered. Do you know why? See, here's the question, is how does the enemy attack? Is it obvious or is it subtle? Think back. We're going to go into this in depth another day. But think back. When the enemy tempted Eve, did he force her to eat the apple? Did he cram it down her throat? Did he shine it up and make it look bigger and better than it already was? No. What did he say? You sure that God said that? It's very subtle. Very subtle. He began to put doubt. This is what we have to understand. How does the enemy attack? Let me give you the answer. It is in your mind. Every single time, the battlefield is in the mind. We talk about mental health today. It's become a buzzword and stuff. And there is truth to that. Most of this is spiritual. Less physical than spiritual. But here's the thing. Why does that matter so much? Because where the mind goes, so will the body. I mean, the reason for anxiety, the reason it affects you emotionally and physically is because that is exactly how God has designed us and wired us. That is exactly how the enemy attacks. He comes to attack your mind. The mind is the control center of your life. And if he can, can seize control of your thought life, then he can extend his influence in every area of your life. And this is why the helmet of salvation is so crucial. Paul's choice of words tells us that we've got to learn about this salvation and how do we do that? Because salvation matters. And we're not going to go into super in-depth parts of this. But we have to understand this, that we are justified by God, not by us. We are then sanctified where we begin to grow into his image. We begin to grow spiritually. We begin to look and act more like what we would say a Christian looks and acts like. And ultimately, we are glorified in the end because we have put our faith, hope, and trust in God and his promises. And the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of that. So that's crucial. But how do we get to that understanding? It's from one thing. It is the study of Scripture. How do you get to heaven? Depends on who you ask, right? But Jesus said there's only one way. Well, that's, that's kind of not inclusive enough. That's very exclusive. We don't like that. We'll throw that one out. Same thing with the Matthew 7, judge not. We just like verse 1. We don't like the rest of it. You see, we have to have this full assurance of what God says on every matter, especially salvation. This is why it's called the helmet of salvation, because if he can get you to doubt your positioning with God, or even who God is, then he can get you to begin to do and believe and act in certain ways. But he doesn't force you to do it. He brings these subtle attacks against you. Now, I'm going to prove this all to you guys biblically. But I want to show you this. Because I'm going to begin to show you guys some of what the Greek says. We've got to get into that because the way things are worded in English don't often carry the weight that they do in the original languages. And so, when we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God. Which parts do you put on? All of it. Don't leave anything off. Why? That you may be able to stand against what? the wiles of the devil. So here's what we know. That this whole armor of God, God has equipped us with everything we need to stand against it. Whose responsibility is to put on the armor? It is yours. So what happens if you are attacked? Whose fault is it? It is yours. And we'll get into that more later. 
It is not the devil's fault. It is not your neighbor's fault. If you are offended by something, whose fault is that? It's ours. We've allowed ourselves to be offended. doesn't mean that the person that offended us is right, but what we allow to take place in our lives is our responsibility, how we respond. So he says to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The wiles of the devil. So God provides the armor. We choose whether we put it on or not. Now, let's look at these words. What does the word wiles mean? Anybody use that this week? Anybody got that in their word of the day toilet paper or anything like that? No, probably not. Let's look at this. The word wiles, what does it mean in Greek? It comes from the Greek word methodos, which literally is where we get the word methods, okay? When you begin to put all of this together, meta, it's based off two words, it's a compound word, meta and odos, it means with, and odos means a road. It's where we get the word odometer. But it literally means with a road. It is saying that the devil works against a believer. He does it with a road, a path that he goes. That means, does he deviate from the path? No. Same thing every time. There's no creativity. There's no variety. It's one road. It's one avenue of attack. He always attacks believers in the same way. So where do you suppose this road goes to? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. For to this end I also wrote, this is still Paul, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sake in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You see, the battlefield is the mind, the road goes to the mind, but what's talking about here? This is talking about forgiveness. Well, what does forgiveness have to do anything? Forgiveness is a decision you make that am I going to harbor ill will towards somebody? What happens when somebody wrongs you? What's your first response? I'll show them. I'll get even. What does Scripture say? Vengeance is mine. Don't worry about it. We are to forgive them. But why do we forgive them? What is he saying? If you lack the forgiveness to a person, Satan is going to take advantage of it. But we should not be ignorant of his devices, the way that he operates. Well, what is a device? Well, device comes from the Greek word nomata, N-O-E-M-A-T-A. I think I have, I do. It's the word for mine. It's from the root word nous, and it means a scheming of the mind. We are not ignorant of the mind games that the devil pulls on us. And I say the devil, the enemy. So where's the road headed? It's headed to the mind. Where is the battlefield? The mind. It's always there. Because what you believe is ultimately proven by how you act. No matter good or bad, whatever it is that you believe to be true will impact the way that you behave. How do we know this? We see it all the time. I told you that when I was a kid and my parents bought me Superman pajamas, I was 100% convinced I would fly. And after knocking the wind out of myself about the third time, jumping off the back of the couch, I realized maybe that's not right. But I was convinced of it. Why do Muslims willingly lay down their life for a belief system? They believe that if they are attacking the infidel and they sacrifice themselves, that they are guaranteed heaven, the term, 72 virgins, the whole thing. Why would you willingly die for that? Because they believe it's true. 
You will lay down your life for something you believe to be true. You will not do it for something you know is a lie. They do it because they believe it's true. Why do martyrs, and you read about this all throughout church history, in situations where their lives are about to be taken from, stand there in peace? Because they know what Scripture says. They know the promise of God. That's why they can be so peaceful in this. Why do people drink Kool-Aid that's going to kill them? Because they believe the lies. You don't do that if you're like, I'm not sure if this is going to work. You wouldn't do it. That's my point. Is whatever it is that you truly believe, not what you say you believe, but what you truly believe is shown through how you act. You can say anything, but how you act matters. And so as we've read this, this device, this scheming of the mind where the battlefield is, we realize that deception is the ticket that leads us on a bad path. Well, what is the word deception? In the Greek, it comes from dolios. And this does not mean that we are accidentally deceived or we are haphazardly deceived as if it's like, oh man, I didn't know that was going to work or anything like that. The word is used throughout the New Testament in multiple verses that's connected to the devil's deceptive abilities. Dolios, the Greek word, it means to bait someone. It's given in the images if you were baiting a fish. You were convincing them to come to you. Fish don't bite blank hooks. Put a worm on there. They like worms. You'd think they'd learn, right? Every time I eat a worm, I end up out of the water. Unless it's me fishing, then they don't. But that's a side story. You see, it's baiting. That is why we are to resist the devil and he will flee from us. That is why in moments of temptation, we make a choice to succumb to it or walk away. Because those are little things that are baiting us. It's no different than when you get offended, you have now been baited by the enemy to show offense towards somebody or something or a group of someone's, whatever it is. You have allowed that to take place, but we don't take ownership. What do we do? We blame somebody else. But did God really say you have to forgive everybody? Did God really say to forgive and forget? Did he really? They shouldn't have done that to you. I mean, show of hands, who's been offended before? Who's offended right now? Put your hands down. I mean, that's the thing. We've all been there, but what we do matters. It, it matters. How we react is what will dictate how we respond. And so when we look at this, when the enemy takes a road to a person's mind, he will beat down that person's resistance until he can wage this warfare because in the mind is where the battlefield is. He will set bait in front of them time and time again with lies and accusations, and, and he's hoping that you will bite now we're going to look at the counter side of this another day and we're going to look at some real world stories another day i'm giving you the basis of this okay this is the foundation of it. this is what we literally call a stronghold you have accepted something and believed something that is holding you back in second corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 we read this look at it is the weapon of our warfare are not carnal but they're mighty in god for doing what they pull down strongholds well where are they those strongholds are in your mind what is there? The weapons of our warfare pull down the strongholds. Well, what is a stronghold? comes from the Greek word, akaroma. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. It is an old Greek word. It is one of the oldest that is found in the New Testament. It originally, when it was used physically, was talking about a fortress or a prison. It, it depicts something that is just completely captured. Now, those are two different things. A fortress does what? Keeps things out. A prison does the other side. It keeps things in. And it is used in both cases. 
the weapons of our warfare do what? They pull down these fortresses. They pull down these prisons. These things would have these impregnable walls. You, you, you read about these all throughout time. And what would happen is when people were coming in, that they would continue to beat against the door. You've seen it in the movies. They beat and beat, or they continue to throw things over the wall or whatever they can until they're finally able to break them down. The story of Jericho, why Jericho was such a big deal. Because you know what you don't do? If you want in, you know how you don't get in? Walk around the place and yell really loud. That doesn't work. It doesn't work for my kids at home. Wouldn't work then. But here's the thing. The weapons of their warfare was not carnal. If you were a Jericho re resident, I don't know what, Jerohokian, I don't know how you say that, whatever you are, and you're sitting up on the wall and you got a bunch of Jewish guys walking around yelling, are you concerned? Neither am I. Is that all you got? All you got doesn't make any sense because the weapons of their warfare was not carnal they were being obedient to what god had said you see they did not react carnally there are examples where they did react carnally and we'll get into that but in that case they did not react carnally because they didn't make any sense these strongholds were prisons prisons keep people in this can be translated as both but first it emphatically means that a person has a mental or emotional stronghold in their life. These walls are so thick they cannot break down. And we are the ones who allow that to be. Because we have not answered the four questions in our mind. Yeah, we may be able to regurgitate what we've heard, but we don't believe it. Because if you know who God is, and you know who you are in relationship to Him, and you know how you're to worship Him, you know who your enemy is, what he does, how he attacks and all of that. There's no way for the enemy to have a stronghold in your life. That means when he does, you've not accepted those things as true. That's where it comes back down to. These don't happen overnight. This is a long period of time. It's time and time again. They get put in there. They, they, they get set up. So when we look at this, we have to understand that there are two types of strongholds. There are rational strongholds and there are irrational strongholds. We've seen it used in a couple different ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says it's casting down arguments. That argument, sometimes it says imaginations. It depends on the translation you have. But here's where this comes from. It comes from the Greek word logosmos. It's where we get the term logic or logical thinking. It's rational strongholds that are exactly what they sound like. God's telling you to do something, but you can't because X, Y, Z. A rational stronghold says, if I want to get into Jericho, marching around and yelling is not going to do it. What happens when they accepted a rational stronghold when they went to spy out the promised land? Man, there are giants there. We can't take on giants. The stronghold was, they're correct. They can't take on giants, physically. But they forgot the part where God said, no, no, no. I go out before you. That's your land. You just got to go into it. But we can't. They're giants. We're grasshoppers. They're giants. They're really big. Two of them believed it. Ten of them didn't. You see, those are rational thoughts, and they're, they're reasonable. I mean, I, we all agree. I mean, if we're looking at that from just a strangely natural standpoint, it is reasonable. People who consistently would call themselves a thinker are the ones that are most prone to these strongholds because they can't get out of their mind. Well, that doesn't make sense. I know. It doesn't make sense. What doesn't make sense is when we tithe, give faithfully in a tithe, 
well, that doesn't make sense mathematically, but yet God has laid out principles behind that. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that when you get sick, they were like, well, call for the uh, elders of the church and let them lay hands, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. That doesn't make sense either. What makes sense? Call the doctor. But yet that's what God says. It doesn't make sense that it doesn't matter what you've done, that God can forgive you and will forgive you, and you can spend eternity with him. That doesn't make sense either. An unconditional love that I didn't have to earn? Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. And yet here we are. We can do this all day. So people who constantly call themselves thinkers will do that and stuff. Your mind will fight constantly against the Holy Spirit's control over your life. And those are the rational side. But what about the irrational strongholds? And we've all experienced this one way or another. Sometimes we call them hypochondriacs. They're constantly afraid of disease. They're constantly afraid of dying early. They have an abnormal fear of rejection from people. So they're always looking at themselves as if I'm this small person. And everybody looks at me as just I'm, I'm this small. They don't think of me as great. I dealt with a couple one time many years ago. And the husband had an affair on his wife. It was a terrible thing, right? He's wrong. They decided to work it out, but she struggled. Because every time she went to the store, she knew people were looking at her, thinking about what he had done to her, why she wasn't good enough for him. Is that reality? No, because the majority of the people, A, didn't know who she was, and B, did not know what had taken place because it wasn't a public event. But she couldn't get over that for the longest time. It was an irrational stronghold. It's the same thing that if you go into your closet... And you have this fear that the walls are going to close in around you. Is that how it works? No. But can you shake that? No. It's an irrational stronghold. So these are the differences in these. And this is how we have to look at this. And this is how the enemy works. And a lot of time, a maturing believer will begin to outgrow these without having to do anything. Because as you mature, there's two things that are going on. You have more accepted what God has said about you and himself as truth. And the other side is, is that you no longer care about the things of this world. We're growing in our understanding because by reason of use, our senses are exercised, as Hebrews 5, that we may recognize what is good and what is evil. This is the maturing person. And so you will see people who have been born again a long time but have never grown past these because they have not matured. They may be in the body, but they have not grown in their relationship with God. That doesn't mean that people dealing with these things are not dealing with real issues. And it doesn't mean that it's always easy to deal with. But most of the time, we are not dealing with them spiritually. We're dealing with them carnally. This is why Paul says that every thought must be taken captive. 2 Corinthians 10, let's read this again, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, here's something. We've talked about this. What are these things going against? The strongholds, the arguments, and every high thing. What are they ex exalting themselves against? The knowledge of God, who He is, who I am in relationship with Him, how I work. These are all the things that are coming against that. It's all going against the same thing. Because when you know who God is and who you are in relationship with Him and all of the others, nothing can keep you down that you don't allow. But what do we do? We take every thought captive. But did you notice something here? There's something that's unique here that we often we lose sight of. Is that Paul never once mentions the devil. He's attacked. He, never, he doesn't mention it there. He only mentions his what? Your thought life. Because what you believe matters. If you don't take your thoughts captives, 
they will take you captive. Let me say that again. If you don't take your thoughts captive, your thoughts will take you captive. You will be paralyzed by fear and doubt and insecurity your entire life. You will never grow out of that if you do not begin to accept what God has said as true. Faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and accepting what God has said as truth. And when you stand in that world, you will no longer be succumb to the bows of the enemy. I've been doing this a long time. I am a very aggressive, bold person. I have no problem standing up in the face of adversity, but I wasn't like that 25 years ago. I've seen some stuff. 20 years of ministry will take you through a, a time or two, and as have many people in this room. But the thing is, is that the, where I am today is not necessarily where I was. I had to grow to this point. And you know what the key marker was in my growth in all of this? Is realizing, geez, God says what he, what he means. It's just it. It's no longer, God, I know that's what you said, but let me explain to you exactly how this should be. It's accepting what he has said is truth. He doesn't mention the devil. He mentions your thought life. He says to take every thought captive. And what does that mean? It comes from this Greek word, and I don't even know how to pronounce this. Eichmala did so. I mean, good luck there. Anybody else wants to take a shot at that? But this word is not as cutesy as the sound of taking thought captive. It's a brutal word. That means you take one captive with a spear pointed in its back or a gun to the back of its head. These things will not be taken easily, but we must forcibly seize control because it's very easy to fall back into the trap. Our mind and emotions are interlocked and they will force us to subjection of what the enemy is doing if we allow it. And that's the key. Now, as I said, this is just the beginning of it. I wanted you to see, first of all, correcting some errors. What his name is, what he looks like, all of that. But the key here is how does he react? How does he attack? Because most of us are thinking, you know, well, there's some demon behind every closet or something like that. It starts right here. Imagine, just think about this, the church, big C, worldwide, truly born again, spirit-filled people, this is what I'm talking about, would get a hold of the truth of who they are in Christ, who God is, how they were, we accept it as scripture has said, what would this world look like if that happened? It'd be different, would it not? And that's the problem, is we have accepted these little lives. The church, the Catholic church, universal church, was foundational. It was the Acts 2 birth. It was the body of Christ. Jews and Greek alike didn't matter. Because remember, there was covenants. Jews had one, the Gentiles didn't. But together in Christ, they are one body. And it went that way for a very long time. Except these falsities kept creeping in. One by one. Little arguments, little deceptions and it had grown into this monster where you could buy your way out of purgatory not a biblical thing and you do these different penances and you give money to the church and you light the candles and these things have grown through time and finally somebody had an awakening none of these things were biblical and where did we come up with this do you realize that at one point it was against the law for you to own a Bible? Imagine. They would not write the Bible in a language of the people. 
Because where did you get your information? From the church. How dangerous is that? Think about that. Suddenly, somebody woke up and says, well, wait a minute. All of these ideas, this started with little, little ideas. It grew into this big monster. It's finally, somebody had enough. He says, I'm not going to stand for this. So he nails it against the wall, the door. Cost him a lot. Some people went with him. He was considered anathema, kicked out of the church. He was a priest, was. We have this whole thing. Imagine what we would be like if that moment hadn't taken place. Because he accepted what God had said as true. Now, let's think about this for just a minute. You and I have accepted lies our entire life in different bases one way or another. We may still believe some. We may not even know. But if we go back to the source and we begin to examine everything that we believe, everything we do, everything we say against Scripture, what happens if we have this moment where we realize those things I thought aren't true? And metaphorically, we nail this against the door and say, no more. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to believe this anymore. I've accepted a lie I didn't realize. But that ends today. What would happen in our lives, our family's lives, our work lives? It would begin to change. And that's what I want you to see. How the enemy has come in an attack, and we'll build upon this next week, is very, very subtle. For those of you who are waiting on that angel of light to just appear and say, hey, I'm here, Angel Maroney, I mean, we talked about this stuff. That doesn't happen very often. I promise you, even with, with Mormonism and that angel Maroni. It didn't start off with just, hey, there's a big shiny angel telling me everything I believe is wrong. I need to go this way. I guarantee you there was a series of things that took place for maybe years before it got to that point. You guys see this? We've got to start thinking different. We've got to start thinking differently. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is the guide to our lives, Lord, and in every area that we are wrong, in every area that we have missed it, Lord, we repent. But Lord, I think that you are leading and guiding us into a direction of newness, of fulfillment, Lord, that we can live our lives exclusively for you, that we are cognizant of the way that the enemy comes in, and we are cognizant of the way that he is going to attack us, and we are also cognizant of the way that we overcome. That is our responsibility. We can blame nobody but ourselves. We can't even blame him, Lord. We simply have to blame what we have allowed on ourselves. So, Lord, I thank you that you are raising up boldness inside of us to stand on truth for what we know is true and that we will allow Scripture to guide us each and every day, that we will not be succumbed to the, the temptations of the enemy, but that we will boldly stand up for what you have said is true. Lord, I thank you that every day is an opportunity for us to live our lives for you and that we do so exclusively and we do so boldly and we will never back down to what's going on in this world, but we will stand boldly for all that you've called us to do. May you be glorified in every aspect of our lives and we give you glory and honor today. It's in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday.